Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. There have been so many crazy things Christians have tried to do in order to find God's will that I sometimes think there could be a TV series made. For example, take the housewife that needed direction from the Lord on an important decision. And so she put her open Bible uh, next to the living room window as the spring breezes blew through the home to see which Bible verse or which page the Bible would turn to. After a short time in prayer to give the wind some time to work, she found and was surprised to see that her Bible opened up to Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, which says, Judas went and hanged himself. Hoping for a better answer, she tried the same method the next day, and this time her Bible opened up to Luke chapter 10, verse 37, which says, go and do likewise. Then there was the college sophomore who desperately needed a car and had been praying for days that the Lord would provide the exact car for his needs and the choice that God would have for him for a vehicle. And one night while sleeping, the young man had a series of dreams in which everything was yellow. So the next morning, he went out and started hitting the car lots looking for a car that was yellow inside and out. Eventually, he found one. He didn't even take it to a mechanic to have it looked at, didn't even test drive it. The eager student just bought it on the spot, believing this car is the one that God has for me. Well, turns out it was a lemon. Did you get that? Seriously, we all need the Lord's help making decisions sometimes and That's because we know there are things he knows that we don't. We're not alone. The scriptures are filled with several stories of regular people just like us who needed the Lord's help making what sometimes were overwhelming decisions. Thankfully, the scriptures contain wisdom for us to use when faced with these challenges. So we'll be continuing our series in the book of Psalms today called Dear God. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 25 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, raise your hands and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. Our theme verse for this series is Psalm 34, verse 4. I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it and memorize it with me. It captures, or at least it testifies, to what we'll be studying today in Psalm 25. Let's read it out loud together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The fact that David sought the Lord reveals that he had a need that he couldn't supply on his own. He most likely had a heavy decision to make, or an overwhelming fear, or both. The next phrase tells us that David got an answer from the Lord and that the answer was good. 
it resulted in deliverance. Now in Psalm 25, we get a peek at another season in David's life and his walk with the Lord. You might remember me mentioning that uh, the Psalms, especially book one, is sort of like his prayer journal. And we get another peek, but in this particular day or season, he needs not deliverance, but he needs direction. Thus, our big idea for today is this. If you want God's blessing, then you must submit to his leading. If you want God's blessing, then you must submit to his leading. Multiple times throughout the scriptures, the Lord promises blessings and goodwill for his children on one condition. That we be willing to do his will. Or in other words, the Lord won't bless those that he cannot lead. David knew this when he wrote Psalm 25. He knew that when man does whatever he wants, it often leads to cursing. But when man does whatever God wants, it always leads to blessing. What we don't know is where David was or what exactly he was struggling with when he wrote Psalm 25. However, it is generally accepted that once again he was uh, surrounded by enemies or suffering in great distress because of them. And I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this series that there are six types of psalms, uh, at least in book one. Uh, this particular psalm is a lament just like we saw in Psalm 13 and Psalm 22. It's classified as a lament because it mentions dire circumstances again in David's life, mixed with a desperate cry for help. Lament Psalms basically say, my life stinks, God doesn't care, and I just want to die. Now last week, Psalm 23 answered the question, where is God when I need him? But today, Psalm 25 seeks to answer the question, how do I pray when I don't know what to do or where to go? And so with that, if you would look with me at uh, Psalm 25, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to read these first three verses. David writes, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. And let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, those none, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Here's point number one on your outline. What do we do when we need direction from the Lord? Well, discovering God's will begins with trusting him. It begins with trusting him. David says, I lift up my soul. This is an interesting turn of phrase because in his distress, David is offering to God the most valuable and the only eternal part of himself. His soul. In fact, it's the only thing of value that he can offer the Lord and it's the only thing that the Lord wants from him and from us. This is language of total surrender here in verse 1. David is saying, here I am, Lord. 
I'm all yours. Please help. Please help. If you want to know God's will for your life in a given situation, you have to trust him. If you don't trust him, you won't be willing to do what he shows you. And if you're not willing to do what he shows you, he won't be willing to reveal it. Now, this all leads to a a very good question. I'm sure you're probably wondering, well, then what is God's will? Well, that's a complicated question, and I could write a book trying to answer it, but we don't have time for that today, so let me try to answer it as simply as I can. Uh, And let's do that by reviewing a table that's on your uh, sermon note handout. And this is a table that I I first introduced about a year ago in another message. But I I like to use it because it simply lays out a structure of what is God's will. And so the Bible basically refers to God's will in two different ways. And if we were to grab all the verses that talk about God's will and his sovereign control over the world and our lives... They could be sort of sorted into two um, buckets. The first, and I'll go down the left-hand side of the column, is God's moral will. This is what's revealed in his word. It's, It's what he desires from us, but we have free will to choose whether we do it or not. So because it's revealed in his word, but we must choose to do his moral will, it sometimes happens, but not always. Some key scriptures for this would be Psalm 40, verse 8, Matthew 12, verse 50, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Now on the other side of the table, in the right-hand column, is God's sovereign will. His sovereign will is revealed through time. Sometimes it's things, events that he causes to happen. Scholars call that his decreed will. Other times his sovereign will is permissive. He allows things to happen for a reason. So he doesn't cause all things to happen in the world. He causes some and he allows others. And so for this reason, God's sovereign will always happens, in contrast to his moral will, which only sometimes happens. Some key scriptures for his sovereign will would be Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 37 to 38, Job 42, verses 1 and 2, Psalm 115, verse 3. It's understanding God's moral will versus his sovereign will that helps us make sense of tragedy, for example, When there's a shooting in Las Vegas, when almost 60 people die, we see that God's moral will was violated, but in his sovereign will, he allowed that to happen. Now, because he's God, he can turn that and redeem it and bring good out of it. He can bring people to faith in Christ and reconcile relationships and do all sorts of good things through tragedy like that. But God doesn't cause evil. He never does. He doesn't authors evil. But that's how he works in the world today. That's just one example. And so, how do we define God's will? Well, here's a a succinct, my attempt at kind of succinctly defining it to try and capture these two wills that are described in the scriptures. 
uh, and that would be God's, it's God's moral standard and sovereign plan for your life. So, for example, is it God's will that you be holy and, and pursue uh, Christ? Yes, absolutely. Is it God's will that you live in this city and work at that job? Well, yes, if he's revealed that. <laughs> but that can change, too. So morally, God's will is his expectation that we hate sin as described in his word and love holiness as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. But sovereignly, his will is where he wants you to work, live, go to school, marry, how many children to have, etc. It's those more personalized things that are not explicitly defined in the scriptures. Sometimes the Lord allows his moral will to be violated so his sovereign will can be accomplished. The best example of this is found in the gospel. God the Father sovereignly decreed that his son would die a sacrificial death on the cross so that salvation could be provided for those that make Jesus their Lord and Savior. This was accomplished by Judas, the Pharisees, and the Roman government sinning against Jesus, though. So God's moral will was violated by Judas, the Pharisees, and the Roman government in order for his sovereign will to be accomplished. So what's an application here? Um, thought you'd never ask. Well, here's one that comes to mind based on these first three verses, and that is tell your soul his will is always better than mine. His will is always better than mine. This is an assumption made by all the authors in Scripture that we should make too. However, I think one of the reasons professing Christians aren't as committed to doing God's will, is that, uh, or at least as, not as committed as they should be, is that deep down in their soul they believe their plans are better. Regardless of the season that you find yourself in now, whether you are struggling or maybe things are going pretty good. I want to encourage you to remind yourself of the truth in Psalm 31, 19. It's one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. David writes, Oh, how abundant is the goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In Psalm 31:19, you might want to underline it in your own Bible. Like it's really underlined in mine and marked up, and I've got like neon lights around it and everything. Uh, in the Hebrew text, it describes sort of a, a treasure chest that God has set aside for those that love Him and fear Him and take their refuge in Him, and He He makes disbursements out of that treasure chest of goodness. It means that the good that God has planned for you is better than the good you could plan for yourself. But it also raises a question. Have you come to this conclusion that the authors of Scripture have come to? Do you believe that his will is better than yours? If you want God's blessing, then you must be you must submit to his leading. Let's look at the text again, verses 4 and 5. David now transitions and says, Lord, make me know 
your ways. Teach me your, your paths and lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation and for you I wait all the day long. Here's number two in your outline. We first have to trust the Lord if we want to discover his will in our lives, but next, uh, discovering God's will follows seeking his face. Discovering God's will follows seeking his face. David uses two similar Hebrew words for ways and paths. They are different in the Hebrew text, but they're similar. They basically uh, paint a, a, a metaphor or a word picture of a road. One particular, one of the words is a, a well-trodden road. And it's a metaphor for a way of life. Teach me your ways or your, your paths. Teach me how I should live is the first thing he's asking, but also help me understand how you work, God. Show me how you work and show me how you want me to live in my current situation. Next, in verse 5, he says, lead me in your truth and teach me. He then asks for help understanding God's word. This is because David realizes that many of the questions that we have in life are answered in the scriptures. But I think there's also another reason he makes this request. There's another reason why David mentions God's ways and God's word. And I think it's that he knows we can't expect God to reveal his unknown will if we aren't willing to do the known will of God that's revealed in his word. We can't expect God to reveal his unknown will if we aren't willing to do the known will of God revealed in his word. Next, David says, For you I wait all the day long, so he's not rushing. It's not like, God, you have 30 seconds to answer me here, or I'm going to move on and do whatever I want. It's, no, 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 you see, there's the presumption that he believes God's plans are better, so God's plans are worth waiting for as long as possible. Now, sometimes God's will isn't obvious. So what can we do when we need to discern what he would have us do in a given situation when it's not a, it's not a moral will question of right and wrong, it's, a, it's something more personal in our lives. Uh, like, should I make this big purchase or take that job transfer or move here or do this or marry that person? What do you do? Well, here's four steps that I'm calling God's will for you seeking his will. <laughs> And I'm going to order them, I have ordered them, in, um, in, I've sort of ranked them in order of reliability. And I'm going to explain that here in a minute. So in other words, letter A is the most objective, and letter D is the least objective. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. So here's A, study scripture. Study scripture. The Spirit of God works in conjunction with the Word of God to give us wisdom we cannot attain on our own. In Psalm 119, the Word is described as a lamp that illuminates the path for our feet. In modern day terms, the Scriptures would be like a flashlight that 
illuminates your, your path as you walk across a campground in the mountains in the middle of the night. It's just dark all around you and you can't see anything. And you have to have that light to see so you don't trip over a tree stump or something like that. Although the Bible doesn't tell us who exactly we should marry, or it does give some principles, though, on what kind of person you should look for that would narrow the field down. And although the Bible doesn't tell us if it's okay to buy another car, house, camper, boat, pool, new kitchen, it does, however, give some parameters on how to manage the money that God's entrusted to us. It does say that the Lord deserves his tithe first, then we get to live on the leftovers, not vice versa. Therefore, if you're praying about buying another house or another car or camper, boat, pool, kitchen, whatever it is, and you're wondering, is this okay with the Lord? But you can't do it without cutting your tithe, then God's word would say, you can't afford it. You don't do it. You don't need a special revelation. There's not much to pray about. You can't do it. Because the Lord says, give me what's mine first. Next, after studying scripture, survey circumstances. Letter B. Survey your circumstances. Because whatever happens in history is part of God's sovereign will, we can conclude that whatever circumstances we are currently in are part of his sovereign will too. This means that when we are trying to discern God's will for our lives in a certain situation or make an important decision, we should look at what he's already doing around us and ask him to give us discernment. Some of the verses that you see there on your handout, Exodus 18, John 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, are just a few examples of how God led or directed his people through circumstances. One personal example I can think of is when Maya and I were praying about whether to start this church um, back in 2014. We were, we really, honestly, we really wanted a special revelation, like say a, a, an orange V over our house, you know, in the sky that some skywriter did or something, something spectacular it would have been great. We were kind of asking and looking for that. And as the weeks passed, we were praying and talking, and I remember one particular day we said, well, let's, let's ask ourselves, what is God doing? Since we weren't seeing any special signs in the sky or anything like that, and we weren't hearing anything in particular from the Spirit, what is God doing? Well, what he was doing was several couples were coming to us saying, hey, would you consider starting a church? And we didn't want to be like that. Um, you Maybe you've heard this story. It's an old it's an old pastor joke story from years back about the, I think it's about somebody that's stuck on their rooftop and there's a flood and, and they're praying for deliverance, rescue, right? And the, the boat, Coast Guard comes and the guy on the rooftop says, I'm waiting for God to deliver me. And so the Coast Guard leaves and then a helicopter comes. I'm waiting for God to deliver me. Thanks, but no thanks. And finally, the guy drowns and goes to heaven and he says, God, how come you didn't rescue me? And allegedly in the story, God says, well, I sent a boat and I sent a helicopter. What else did you want? And uh, so 
didn't want to be like that guy. And so uh, we asked ourselves, what's God doing? Well, he's sending people, and we know that he doesn't waste anything. And so we decided, let's step out in faith and start a new church. So far, so good. <laughs> so um, survey your circumstances. Here's letter C. Uh, seek godly counsel. What do you do when you need to make a decision, an important decision, and you don't have all the answers or all the wisdom that you need? You can seek godly counsel. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 15.22 that without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, when making an important decision, it's critical to get input from other believers that know you well and might see things that you don't and might ask some hard questions. But here's the thing, the bigger the decision, the less you need to rely on yourself to make it. Yeah, I wanna make, I'm gonna say that again. The bigger the decision is, the less you should rely on yourself to make it. First, you need to find advisors that have some expertise in the area you need counsel. For example, it would not be wise to go seek financial advice from somebody that had declared bankruptcy unless they're gonna tell you what not to do. Or, or say to seek marriage advice from somebody that's had an unbiblical divorce. They're, they're probably not gonna encourage you to follow God's will for your marriage and, and, and to honor him and, and take the steps necessary to save your marriage. If at all possible, your advisors should be born again, filled with the Holy Spirit and know the scriptures. This is one of the many reasons why I've said it's imperative that you be in a small group because you're going to need those relationships so you can tap on some people when you have a big decision to make. So that you can tap on some people to pray for you or you have some folks that you know, okay, I can talk to this guy in my group because he's got expertise and wisdom and here he's really good at this. And I can talk to this person about that subject. You, you sort of have a board within your group, an advisory board. But again, if you're not in a group and you haven't been able to make time for that or you've chosen not to make time for that, when a big decision comes, it's really hard to find advisors. Being part of a group provides a plurality of relationships you can tap on when you need counsel. Next, when you're seeking advisors, you need to, you need to listen to see if there's agreement amongst the people you speak with. You need to make sure that their counsel doesn't contradict Scripture. Of course, if it does, Scripture trumps that. Finally, godly counsel is only effective if you're willing to consider what you might not want to hear. So don't expect the Lord to bless you if, if you only go to people that will tell you what you want to hear. Don't, don't expect the Lord to bless you or be, be pleased if you've already made up your mind what you're going to do, but you just want to find some people that are going to affirm it already. That's, that's not the kind of heart that the Lord's looking for. In other words, don't, don't be like the middle-aged school teacher who invested her life savings in a Ponzi scheme that a very crafty swindler talked her into. And after she lost her life savings and her dreams of a lavish retirement were shattered, she went downtown to the Better Business Bureau to complain and make them aware of this swindler. 
The Better Business Bureau, though, said, why on earth did you not come see us first? We've known about this guy for quite some time, and we could have told you not to give your money to him. To which the middle-aged school teacher sadly said, well, I've always known about the Better Business Bureau, but I didn't contact you because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. So seek godly counsel with a heart that wants to listen. Next, letter D, submit yourself in prayer. Submit yourself in prayer. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, King David sought the Lord about whether to go to war with the Philistines. And the Lord said, yes, I'll be with you. So he did. In Psalms 34 and 143, David uh, asked the Lord to make it clear which direction he is to go. Submitting ourselves in prayer would be like in 2 Chronicles 20, where King Jehoshaphat says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you as an invading army is coming. It's praying like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not what I will, but what you will. So when you go to the Lord in prayer, ask the Lord to lead you to relevant scriptures. Ask him for discernment about your circumstances. Ask him to lead you to godly counselors. And what you believe the Spirit has told you should never contradict Scripture, which is another reason why you need to know the Scriptures. And if what you heard in prayer does contradict Scripture, then most likely it was your flesh or the adversary speaking. Now you might be wondering, well, what if I've done all these things and I followed the steps, but it still isn't clear what I should do? Well, then you make a decision by faith using the information that God has given you. And you trust him with the results. Certainly, Maya and I have had to do that at times. There were times where it was clear what God wanted us to do, and there were other times where it wasn't clear. And we had to step out in faith. We did all the steps. We gave the Lord as much time as we possibly could to reveal what he wanted us to do. And I think that's what mattered most, is that our heart wanted to hear from him. But there are times where he wants us to step out in faith where it's not as clear. And that's good for our walk with him as well. Now the reason why I've ranked these um, scripture and circumstances as the most objective or reliable and then uh, counsel and prayer uh, less reliable or less objective, is that we have to factor in our fallenness and, and, and the doctrine of depravity and how that affects our decision-making. We can't just toss out certain parts of the Bible that we don't like or don't want to consider. We've got to realize that we're fallen creatures, that as Jeremiah 17.9 says, our heart is deceitful, and we can deceive ourselves, and we can deceive others. This makes discerning the difference between our emotions and the Holy Spirit challenging. Not impossible, but challenging. It takes maturity and, and, and lots of prayer to discern, is that the Spirit talking, is that the adversary talking, or my flesh? Although godly counsel and prayer have more room for subjectivity, I want to stress that all four steps are important. I just would weight them differently. 
Because scripture is, it's cut and dry, it's black and white. Circumstances, pretty, pretty cut and dry as well. Here's what God's doing. This is what God's allowed because his sovereign will allows things and anything that happens is part of his sovereign will. It's less fuzzy and subjective. I say this because I have known too many believers over the years that have made life-altering, unbiblical, unwise decisions based on prayer alone claiming the Spirit led them. And I'm talking like, um, I've got nightmare horror stories of church members that said, I prayed about it, and God has released me from my marriage, and they have no biblical reasons to be released. But the word doesn't really matter. And because of their, I have a word from the Spirit, thinking, a family gets blown up. The church is damaged because then the wife leaves and the husband leaves and the small group blows up and kids are separated and all that because somebody wanted to rely on the spirit, which really was, my flesh has told me something I want and I don't want to submit to the word and I don't want godly counsel and I don't want to look at circumstances and how God might be trying to sanctify me in my marriage. All those things didn't matter. It was... I have a word from the Lord. And then the pastors and the elders in the small group are left to clean up the mess. So that's why I'm saying what I say. Application, what do we do? Decide to do God's will before you even know it. We need to decide to do God's will before we even know what he wants us to do. One of the many reasons this is critical is that it is a litmus test of whether you're saved or not. Did you know that Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 50, for whatever, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. This means like Jesus, we must be willing to do the Father's will even if it's scary, uncomfortable, undesirable, illogical, costs us relationships, or even costs us our lives. That's what he expects from us. And God's word says, that's good. So if you want God's blessing, then you must submit to his leading. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Next, he says, good and upright is the Lord. Verse 8, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Here's number three on your outline. Revealing his will is something God delights to do. Revealing his will is something God delights to do. In verse 8, David says, therefore he instructs sinners. In other words, it's, Because we are sinners, we need the Lord's instruction and help. And he gives it out of the goodness of his own heart. Verse 9, we see that he also narrows the field down to the people who get this guidance. Do you see it there in your Bible? It's the humble. The humble people. He leads the humble. He teaches the humble. 
Note that the Lord's leading is only made available to these particular people. Believers that have humbled themselves, who, who admit, I don't know what I need to know. I need to learn. And I'm asking the Lord to lead me and I'm willing to do whatever he tells me. So, application for number three. Believe the Lord wants to show me his plan and that it will be good. We need to believe the Lord wants to show us his plan and that it will be good. This is, this is what the language of the, the psalm reveals. The Lord's character is above reproach because his nature is good and upright. And his nature creates plans that are steadfast love and faithfulness. Just as all of you who have children and grandchildren would never do ill towards them, the Lord also would never do anything spiteful to us. Because David and many other authors of Scripture have observed, he's good and upright. He doesn't treat people the way we treat people. Look at verses 11 and 12. Next, David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Here's number four. The fourth truth that we can glean from this passage about discerning God's will is that discovering God's will follows repentance of known sin. It follows repentance of known sin. David says, pardon my guilt, for it is great. There was no playing games with God. He knew that he was a sinner, that he was fallen, that he rebels. He does, his, he does what he wants at times. But he was quick to want to make it right with the Lord. He asked for forgiveness in verses 6 and 7 as well. If you look back at verses 6 and 7, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love. So David was keenly aware of his fallenness. And he understood that he can't expect God to answer his prayers if there's unfinished business with his sin. Psalm 66, 18, that's a cross-reference you might want to jot down. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist there the choir master writes, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I like to say that sin clogs the plumbing between us and God. If there is known sin that we have not repented of, the Lord perceives that as us loving the sin more than him. And so, like any good parent, he chooses not to reward that behavior until it's dealt with. I also think another reason David confesses his sin is that he wants to make sure his current trials are not a consequence for some disobedience he committed. So just in case all the stuff that he's dealing with right now is as a result of something he did, he, he wants to address that issue too. That's another sign of humility. He was open to the fact, the possibility, that his current trials might be disciplined from the Lord. So the application is obvious, I think. Be quick to repent of sin. Be quick to repent of sin. The Lord stands by with open arms, waiting to forgive us 
when we do repent. And he promises not to let our sin hinder our relationship with him moving forward. Dealing with sin quickly also increases our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit so we can hear him better. On the other hand, procrastinating repentance has a way of desensitizing us to the Spirit. Finally, the fifth truth that we can glean from Psalm 25 about discerning God's will and something we need to prepare ourselves for, and that is that God's will is not always comfortable. It's not always comfortable. In the remaining verses, David laments about his dire circumstances. And he writes that he was lonely in verse 16. He has a troubled heart in verse 17. He's overwhelmed by his enemies in verse 19. And what's worth noting is that David had enemies because he loved the Lord. I think there's a misconception out there amongst 21st century American evangelicalism that if you um, love the Lord and you do everything right, you shouldn't have any enemies. And that's, that's not biblical thinking. And it doesn't mean you go around making enemies, you know, um, but there's plenty of evidence that the men and women who loved God and feared God weren't popular with the world. Throughout his life, David had enemies, and if, this is, if you're noticing kind of a repeated theme here in the Psalms, it's because, yeah, most of David's life, he had people that wanted to kill him. Kind of sounds like Jesus' life. Therefore, in verses 15 to 22, I think it's a reminder that doing God's will isn't always comfortable. In fact, it may lead to suffering, rejection, and betrayal, just like Jesus experienced. But the Lord sees this, he keeps score, and he promises to reward those that have suffered for him. One example that comes to mind is in Acts 21, Paul stopped by the church in Caesarea on his way back to Jerusalem because the Spirit had called him back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, there's a prophet named Agabus who predicts, he takes Paul's belt and then binds himself with the belt and says, the man whom this belt belongs to will be arrested and killed in Jerusalem. And when the prophet Agabus did this in front of Paul and the church in Caesarea, all the members of that church started to weep aloud and beg Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul gives an answer that only Paul could give to this. In Acts 21, typical Paul fashion, he says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I... I am, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I've always wondered what the apostles would say to modern-day Christians who, who say, I, I know God wants me to do this because I have peace about this. I've prayed and I have peace. There are plenty of examples in the scriptures where God's people were called or forced to go do something the Lord wanted them to do, and they weren't at peace about it, and it wasn't comfortable, and it wasn't easy. I think it goes without saying that there's no basis in Scripture for peace being the final metric of whether it's God's will or not. 
So the application, <laughs> well, we need to love the Lord more than our comfort. It's easy, to, especially in a first world country like ours, with all the many amenities that we enjoy, it's easy to let comfort kind of creep up on the throne of our hearts and become an idol or we'll do whatever we need to to protect it. And so if the Lord asks us to do something that makes us uncomfortable, we go, eh, I was willing to do this, Lord, but not that. Not that, that's too far. Because that would make me feel uncomfortable, Lord. Thus, perhaps you've noticed the theme in the scriptures, we're called to love unconditionally. That's uncomfortable. We're called to give sacrificially. Eh, that's hard too. We're called to serve joyfully. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to reconcile broken relationships. And I could go on and on and on with a list of things that God calls us to do that are uncomfortable. This is because the Lord is more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. And he is more concerned about achieving his plans than he is us protecting ours. So, God's will is not always comfortable. Thus, we should love the Lord more than our comfort. If we want to be a church that radically transforms our city, our county, and the world with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, then we individually need to be committed to fulfilling God's will in our lives. Submitting to the Lord's leading not only prevents us from living a life full of lemons, but it also enables us to experience God's blessing. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, this passage in Psalm 25 is, shall I say, uncomfortable. First of all, Lord, because it shows a man who's, who's suffering and he seems willing to suffer more in order to just do your will. And as we look at David and we see his prayer, we realize we, we fall short. So Lord, would you do a work in our hearts by your spirit and by your grace? Would you get us to the place where we can say from the very bottom of our soul, not my will, but your will be done. Where we, we can say, Lord, here I am. Send me, use me. Lord, if, if there is repentance that needs to take place in this room because of self-centeredness or making plans and decisions without consulting you, then would you make that clear and lovingly, but gently, but firmly prompt that repentance. Lord, I want to pray for those that are here today that they, they are longing for some direction from you. They have decisions to make and they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do, but they want to please you. Lord, please, would you, would you supply scripture verses and 
help them discern circumstances and lead them to godly counsel and speak to them through prayer. And Lord, for those that are here today that are kind of, or maybe listening online that, that have never really thought about doing your will, they, they just have been used to making their own decisions. Would you, would you speak to them and change their heart and humble them? Would you help them to see that even if their life's been pretty good making their own decisions, would you help them to see they're missing out on the better things that you have for them? Father, would you help us as a church to, to not be a church that plays it safe, but instead to be a church that walks by faith? A church that's willing to get uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, to be inconvenienced to make a difference for eternity. We love you, Lord. We want to please you with our lives. Please, would you show us this week how we can do that by bringing back to our memory with your spirit the things that we've learned from Psalm 25 today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.